the Gospel of John. This is the fourth book of the New Testament. And uh, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are, are, uh, they pretty closely follow the same sequence. And it's, they're called the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means sort of viewing things the same way. Uh, John has some interesting, unique angles. And it's not that it's at, odd with the other, at odds with the other three. It's just that there are emphases here that aren't in the other three. And uh, it, it's a wonderful way of getting at what Jesus really was about, what he was saying, claiming, doing. So we're uh, this morning in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. And before we read this, I want you to think about this. Um, how long ago was it? Less than 10 years. It was when I was involved in campus ministry that the movie The Passion of the Christ came out. And I remember that the, the rhetoric about what this movie was and what it was going to accomplish was, was pretty thick. And there were claims like, this will be the most powerful evangelistic tool of the last two millennia. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a pretty strong claim. This will be the most powerful evangelistic tool of like all, all of church history because, you know, big screen and it's, it's, gonna, it's not going to pull any punches. It's going to let the graphic things be graphic and uh, it's going to be in Hebrew and Aramaic and it's just, you know, watch. Watch what happens. Not much happened. There might be some things happened, but, but nothing like the predictions. Now that is, is not to fault anyone in particular, but, it, but that is to acknowledge a reality. And here's the reality. Believing, when you haven't believed, isn't just hard, it's unnatural. In other words, it's not just, hey, give people the right data and they'll respond accordingly to the right data. It's hard to the point of being unnatural, as evidenced by the fact that millions and millions and millions of dollars spent on this and all these predictions, watch them go, and really it was sort of a fizzle afterward. But then think about this. When you read the accounts of people who did not believe and then did believe, they... It's as if they want to grab you by the lapel and say, I know it's unnatural, but it's amazing. I mean, a real famous example from church history is Martin Luther. Martin Luther got scared to death one day when lightning almost struck him. And he thought, okay, God is... We talked about this phrase a few weeks ago, trying to get my attention. And, okay, so what should I do? And in his cultural context, the answer was, become a monk. And so he becomes an Augustinian monk. And he said, I was out monking all my peers. Literally, he says, I out monked all the guys in my monastery. I outfasted them, more night vigils. He said he destroyed his digestive system. He had problems with that for the rest of his life. He destroyed it during that time in the monastery because he was so much harder on himself than even the other monks. And he said, it did not bring me a lick of peace. At one point, he acknowledged, I hated God. Now, there's a strange statement. And he said that one day when he was preparing some university lectures that he gave, it was part of his teaching responsibilities as a monk, 
He's working on the book of Romans, and he came to this phrase. He had read it before, studied it before, and he said it was as if God turned the light on, and you can almost picture him just at his desk looking up, and he said it was like the gates of heaven that were bolted shut to me, swung open. And the rest of his life, he wanted everybody to know, although he would be the first to say, it's hard, it's unnatural. In fact, at a human level, it's, it's impossible. Both and. Uh, this text that we're about to read is in the Gospel of John. This is Jesus bringing his public ministry to a close. That really from here on out, he's with his disciples, moving toward the cross... He's crucified publicly, but that out and about teaching, doing his thing, it comes to a close in this passage. And what do we find him talking about? We find him talking about the thing that drives John as a book. And it's this verb called believe. And I want you to see both things. I want you to see, on the one hand, how hard it is to believe. It's actually impossible, humanly. And the glory of believing. All right, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. Though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, some of us right now are angry. Uh, We are angry at 
perhaps the person we're sitting next to. Or we are angry at you. Or we are disappointed with you. Or we are cold toward you. And Father, before we go any further, we would acknowledge these things because you know them anyway. Nothing is hidden from your sight. We of all people need to hear your word. So please enable us to do so. We ask this in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's look at this whole thing of belief. Again, if, if you, uh, you don't have to do this, but if you get a pencil or pen and, and you mark in the Gospel of John the verb believe or the noun belief or faith. Faith and believe look like different words in English. In, in Greek, they are variants of the same word. You will have underlining all over the Bible, but all over John. All over John. And in fact, at the end of the Gospel of John, John says, it's really a great comment, he says, look, Jesus did plenty of other things I didn't write down. In fact, he says, if, if, I wrote down everything, if, we, if you wrote down everything Jesus did, the world couldn't uh, uh, fit the books. But I wrote these down so that you will believe. You know, cards on the table. So let's look at this. First off, the nature of unbelief and the object of belief. Not, I, don't, I don't want to look so much at the nature of belief. Let's look at the nature of unbelief and the object of belief. Okay, first off, the nature of unbelief. A couple of things. Number one, miracles alone cannot change us. Miracles alone cannot change us. What, what does it say in verse 37? Though Jesus had done so many signs before them. And we've already looked at this in the Gospel of John, that John likes to call miracles signs instead of miracles. And why is that? He likes to highlight the fact that these are not just parlor tricks, but that if Jesus makes water turn into wine to make a feast continue in the context of a wedding... It's a sign that I have come to do something that is going to give you festive, wine-like joy in the context of a greater marriage. That's another sermon. Or if someone like his close friend Lazarus is dead. Jesus didn't raise all the dead people in Judea, but He raised Lazarus. And it was a sign to say what? Hey, that was a phenomenal miracle, but I can do a greater one. That's just a sign that I can raise you out of your spiritual death and give you life. So that one day when you do die, on the other side of it is not ongoing death, but exploding life. It's a sign. And John says this, he had done so many signs. Just if we had no others, the ones that John records that happened in or around Jerusalem are things like there's a man who's been an invalid for 38 years. He lost his ability to walk when I was four. Almost his whole life. Unable to walk. And Jesus raises him publicly, not in a closed room. There's a man born blind 
He's been blind from birth in John 9. Jesus heals him publicly, not behind closed doors. And the one that we looked at recently, Jesus goes to a tomb, not way out somewhere, and we heard about My best friend told me this happened, but in front of a whole group of people, and he raises a man who's been dead so long that he smells. And John says, even though he did these things, those who did not believe dug in their heels. And here's the thing. That is not a new pattern in the Scriptures. That's an old pattern. Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like, you know, I do believe, or maybe I struggle with believing, but I just, I've got this, I've got this skeptical thing in me. I'm, I'm kind of a skeptic deep down. I mean, I'm dealing with it, but if I drink too much coffee, it kind of flares up. But, it, it, but I really think that if I could have seen something like the Red Sea part, I'd be good. You know, that like if I could see something that just sort of bowled me over, it would really galvanize my belief. All right, listen to what Moses said to a group of people who saw those things or whose parents saw those things, who saw food daily fall out of the sky. He says this. This is in Deuteronomy 29. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And the reason Moses knew that is because you live like people who never saw this. And this is an insight into what we are like. The miraculous, uh, wondrous signs cannot by themselves change us as the Gospels demonstrate. But here's the really tough part, because it may be that you go, well, okay, I didn't expect to see the miraculous. Now, here's the rub. We ourselves, we alone cannot change us. We alone cannot change us. Did you notice in the first few verses that Isaiah, that's a great Old Testament prophet, he's referred to three times. And John is up to something here. And what does he say in in the first time he cites him? Look in verse 37. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In other words... God had already said, this is how it would go. Look here. Here's the quote from Isaiah. And just FYI, this is from Isaiah chapter 53, which is often regarded as the clearest, most obvious prediction of Jesus in the whole Old Testament. It is so explicit, at points it sounds like it's reading from one of the Gospels. 800 years before Jesus shows up. And that chapter begins with this statement at the end of verse 38. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What's the arm of the Lord? 
The arm of the Lord is an Old Testament way of saying when God does something wondrous. You know, when He kind of publicly flexes His muscle and shows His power. says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who, Who has seen it? Rhetorical question. The answer is virtually nobody. And then it goes on to say this. Look in the the next few verses. Why? Why is that? Why are God's people not seeing and grasping what their God is miraculously doing? Verse 39, Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, and this is from Isaiah chapter 6, He, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, this gets into some hard things. Because if you were listening, what, let me, where that comes is from Isaiah 6. That's where God sort of gave the prophet Isaiah his marching orders in his job as a prophet. Now, tell me if you would like this job description. Hey, Isaiah... I want you to go and speak to the Israelites and tell them that even though I'm talking to you, you're never, ever going to listen to me. Because God has blinded your eyes. And you're not going to listen to me because your ears have been closed by God. And your heart has been hardened. Because if He didn't do that, then you might turn to Him and be healed. Okay, wouldn't that be fun? To go tell a group of people that. And I hope that if you're thinking right now that you're asking a question, why in the world would God ever blind somebody so that they don't see what's true? I mean, are you thinking that? I mean, why in the world would God not let someone hear so that they hear what's true and what would give them life? Why, why would He harden somebody's heart? And what, what is jolting about that is those verbs are... Okay, hearken back to high school grammar. Come back with me to high school grammar. For me, Miss Yoder's class, come on. <clears throat> active and passive verbs. Now, an active verb would be I, I hit you know, or I strike. Passive is I got hit or I was struck. You know, you're, you're the recipient. And what's jarring is that it says God hardens a heart or He blinds eyes and they're active verbs, Right? And here's the thing for us to understand. That sounds to us like God is reaching into a good person. Or maybe let's just say kind of a morally neutral person. And He's sort of rewiring things so that whereas they already do see the truth and hear the truth, He's like unplugging it. And now now you can't see. And now you can't hear. (laughs) Maniacal laughter. Or, you know, your heart was soft, but I'm just pouring in quickcrete, and now it's just, just ossifying, and now your heart... All right, let me ask you this, living in the South, active verb. How do you grow weeds? I can't speak for your yard, but in the hay big yard, you merely breathe. You merely keep paying property taxes, and you will actively grow weeds. In other words, like if, if I just said, I'm going to grow weeds in this plot, the way in the South I would do that, active verb, is just never intervene. 
I will grow actively, grow, ver- uh, grow weeds by just, I will not do anything to intervene in what that plot of ground naturally does. For our purposes, think of the plot of ground as our hearts. And the gardener is God. How does God harden someone? Be yourself. Just keep wanting what you want. Keep keep pursuing what you want to pursue. If you do not want me to intervene, I will not. And this is can be very jarring for us to hear because I think we tend to think that, well, if God leaves me alone, I'm sort of morally stagnant rather than if God withdraws and does not intervene, the trajectory of my life is blindness, hardening, stopping my ears. That's who we are. That's who we are. And, and I, I, I can't give this as much time as I'd like, but Jesus says this. The real tragedy, if that trajectory continues, and if that trajectory continues and you've been exposed to what I've said, the real tragedy is that at the end, these beautiful things that I've said become a judge. And if you'll stop and just... just let that wash over you for a minute, it will almost make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. But here is Jesus, for instance, standing in front of just a haggard, tired, morally worn out group of people, and He stands there as God incarnate and says, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You'll find rest for your soul. And Jesus says this, if you end up rejecting that, what becomes your judge at the end are those words and that you, for eternity, now living with this internal taskmaster who whips you incessantly and drives you incessantly and will not let you rest. The condemnation are these beautiful words, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, that were rejected. That's the nature of unbelief. Now, how about some good news? What about the object of belief? The object of belief. First off, do note, uh, this may be stating the obvious, but it's important. It's not just belief in something. It's not just kind of truth as I understand it. But over and over the phrase in here is belief in Him. It's in verses 37, 42, 44, 46... Belief in Him. Belief in Him. Jesus saying, belief in Me. Believe in Me. You may say, okay, I know that. I know that John's about Jesus. But catch what John said here. Think about this. And please hear this part because you'll miss something wonderful if you don't. He says that right after he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. Let me read this again. Look back in the text. Start at the end of verse 39. It says, Again, Isaiah said, this is quoting from Isaiah 6, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, very important, verse 41. Isaiah said these things 
because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw his glory and spoke of him. What does that mean? And what John's referring to is that if you read Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah got his marching orders, he went in the temple and he saw a vision of God's glory. The Lord appearing on His throne. And it absolutely leveled Him. He said that the angels that He saw, they were even covering their own faces, unable to look at the glory of God. And their, I mean, it's where the first hymn comes from. They're, they're crying like an antiphony. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His what? His glory. And then just kind of in passing, John says, you know, Isaiah said that because he saw Jesus' glory and wrote about it. And do you understand what he just claimed? Not necessarily that Isaiah saw Jesus seated on a throne, but that the divine glory that he saw that both thrilled him and leveled him to his knees, that was intimidating to angels who serve in God's presence, that glory was a vision of who Christ is. And Isaiah saw it 800 years before this man was born. And what that means is that to believe in Jesus is to tap into... This thing that, I mean, I wish I knew every one of you one-on-one. I don't. I can't ever at the depth that I'd love to know you. But I do know one thing about you. And you may, we, we may not verbalize it this way, but every man and woman and child in this room wants glory. I made it a point yesterday to get up before the family and walk around my neighborhood at sunup and made the plan, got up, did it. And it was my, I, I vote that snow the perfect snow. I do. I voted the perfect snow. It was like no power outages, no overturned cars. The city's not like brought to its knees for a week. Um, you get the sort of magical Friday, gray, ooh, ominous snow, you know. And then Saturday, clear blue skies, snow on the limbs up against the blue. I mean, it was just, it was perfect. And I wanted to go walk out before it was just massacred by everybody. And here's the thing. You walk out and it's great and it's dissatisfying. And the greatest reflection on this I think anyone ever wrote that I know of is by C.S. Lewis. A sermon called The Weight of Glory. He said, you know what it is. You see that pure snow before there are any footprints. Or you see the snow up against the blue sky. And you don't just want the snow. You want to partake in that purity. You want to partake in that beauty. And he says, what, what you want is glory. You don't just want to enjoy it. You want to pass into it and become part of it. 
And what that is in our hearts is not, it, it can be wrongly practiced as nature worship, pantheism, dissatisfying. You want glory. And that to believe in Christ is finally to tap into the glory we want. And then Jesus says this, if you tap into that and you believe in me, what a strange thing for Jesus to say. He says, if you believe in me, you don't believe in me. He says, you believe in the Father. Look at the claims He makes. First off, verse 45, whoever sees me, sees Him who sent me. And then he says this, and one way you can know that is that the things I've said, I didn't dream up. But I said the things that my father told me to say. Let me, let me tell you something. It is embarrassing as a preacher and a minister to finally learn things I should have learned a long time ago because I'm working on sermons and to realize I've been reading the Bible that has been saying this all along, and it just now dawned on me that it's important. And that happened this week. It happened when it finally hit me. Jesus keeps saying over and over, I say the things that I say because my Father told me to say them to you. Listen to this. Just just two examples from John. John 8, 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. 15, 15, I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. If you find yourself here this morning... And honestly, what you feel in your heart of hearts is, I know that maybe I should uh, learn more about God or look into God more, but the people who seem to be most into God are the people I do not want to be around. They are the people I avoid for very good reason. I do like Jesus. Jesus would say, well, then let's stop and think about that. Because if you don't like religious people when they are being most religious, what if it's the case that God is that way too? What if you feel that the most severe words should not be used with the prostitute, the drunk, whatever, but with the self-righteous? Then maybe you're on to something because those are the words that the Father if, if I can put it this way, they are equal in power and glory, but the Father saying to the Son, I want you to say it just this way. And He does. But that is what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, look at the Son. And let me say this too. Any doubt I had in my mind that we run our understanding of God as Father through the template of our own dads any doubt I had has been dispelled after just a few years in the pastorate. You may have had a great one. You may have had an in-between one. You may have had a really unfortunate one. The way you know what God is like is not primarily your dad. The son and his words that the father told him to say.
This text does not explicitly say what I'm about to say, but the rest of Scripture does. How do we have this belief? He has to give it to us. He has to give it to us. And let me end by saying this. If you're here as a Christian, or if you're here not as a Christian, or you don't know what you are, first to Christians. Uh, One minister named Steve Brown said this, you know, if you see a turtle up on a fence post, you probably figure he didn't get there by himself. And I would ask us, what do you think visitors feel when they walk in here? Because if we feel that the reason that we came to know God, came to know His Son, is because we had the moral fortitude to keep looking and studying, and we came up with the right answers, and other people should too, it will flavor this whole room. And will run off the very people that should feel most welcome. This room is a, is a level playing field. If we believe it is because the arm of the Lord has been revealed to us. But I would say this too. Do we understand that we are partaking in glory? Love for good glory and love for bad glory can be mingled. It said there were religious leaders that they did believe in Jesus, but they sure loved the glory of man. Both and. The only thing that will drive out the bad glories is good glory. Last thing, if you are here, if you're not a Christian, or you're not sure yet, I want you to hear this. That one of the things that the Father told the Son, taught the Son to say, this is in John, you tell them that whoever comes to you, that you'll never cast away. And I want to leave you with that. Whoever comes to Jesus, anybody, He will never cast you away. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, for those who believe, we would say we do believe. Help us in our unbelief those who doubt or struggle or who for now do not embrace this or not convinced, would you give belief? Give the ears to hear and the eyes to see, for we all need it. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.